Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 11 of Out with Susie Ruffle. It's Sunday today, Sunday the 1st of November, Mum and Dad's anniversary, if you're interested. Uh, I think it's 46 years today, that's pretty good going, isn't it? Um, so we've just been announced we're going into another lockdown. I wonder if you're listening to this and feeling a bit blue at how bleak the news is and how much we, uh, how much we all need to stay inside again. Of course it's the right thing to do or I feel it's the right thing to do but it doesn't change the fact that it feels oh like we're heading into it again and it feels quite grim but at least this time I'm thinking um, I have an understanding of what it's like and I know how to keep my mental health in check uh, which is board games some card games lots of walks and quite a lot of Netflix if I'm being honest and Amazon and I mean other places are available that's what you meant to say isn't it Thank you for listening to this podcast. Thank you to all of those of you that have got in touch. Lots of you seem to enjoy Raven's episode last week. Uh, thanks to all of you that have given me a review on iTunes. That's super helpful. It helps people find the podcast. And for tweeting or for Instagramming or for sending me a message or for just listening to it, if it's not your bag, to get in touch. That's totally fine too. So in series one, we did 10 episodes uh, and then we did a bonus episode with AKT, the uh, formerly known as the Albert Kennedy Trust, the charity episode. Now, we're thinking, seeing as we're all just about to go back into lockdown and we're not really sure what's going on and we're not really sure how we're all going to be feeling, what I've decided to do is I'm going to try and do an episode every week up until Christmas. That is the plan. I'm now booking in some new guests, um, some people that some of you have emailed in and asked for. I'm reaching out to lots of the people that you guys have suggested. So um, hopefully we'll get some of those in. So yes, we'll be with you. Well, we're trying to be with you every week until Christmas, providing we can find um, some people that want to be interviewed and want to share their story. So uh, we'll be keeping you company for a little bit longer because that feels like it's, um, it's a nice thing for me to do and hopefully it'll be nice for you as well. So as always, we start the podcast with some emails. If you want to get in touch with me, please do. The email, as always, is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. First one today is from Josh. I won't give you his surname. He hasn't mentioned that I can't give you his name, but I'll just give you I'll just give you his first name. Firstly, thank you, thank you, thank you for all you've done, your comedy, your activism, and for the chatty, informal way you always manage to amplify your voice and the voices of others. How you use your platform inspires me and many people I know. Josh, that is a very lovely thing of you to say. Um, 
I mean, a lot of the time I feel like my comedy is just showing off, but um, I'm pleased that it um, that it feels like more for you. And um, yeah, thank you for saying those lovely things. It's very kind of you. Okay, back to the email. I sometimes forget that you don't know who I am because I feel like I know you so well and you've become a friend and hero. I mean, that's a very strong word, Josh. I, I wouldn't call me a hero. I'm the clumsiest person in the world. You heard about me smashing my back window last week. But that's, for, again, a very kind thing of you to say. And you've helped me over the last five years as I've entered my 20s. I'm a queer actor and writer a year out of drama school. And since the pandemic hit, I felt very low about my future and my livelihood, especially when our government is telling me my whole career is unviable and unnecessary. Oh, Josh, I've had such similar feelings. I really feel for you a year out of drama school. I remember when I graduated from drama school, there wasn't a lot of work around, but it was nothing like what we're experiencing now. I really hope that you're managing to keep your chin up and um, maybe try creating something yourself. That's what I did, and I ended up being a stand-up. Okay, back to the email. Sorry, I keep interrupting myself today. I'm a bit all over the shop. I've just been to the gym. Can you tell? I have listened to every episode of the podcast and loved every single one. I've wanted to write to you for a while now, but I haven't felt my story is particularly unique or noteworthy, having had a lovely and supportive family and a relatively easy ride on my LGBTQIA plus journey. Then in brackets, he says, minus a few school bullies, but where are they now? Yes, quite. But then I listened to the wonderful Reverend Richard Coles episode today and I realised it's not just about my story so far, it's about what's to come. The episode gave me hope. I could have listened to you two for hours and hours. I smiled so wide listening to him tell us about his varied career, his commitment to the fight for equality and justice, his excellent way of expressing love and acceptance through faith. It all inspired a hope and passion inside of me which I thought was slipping away. I go forward this week with all that in my heart and why these uncertain times are full of despair, I know we prevail and I know we will be more loving and more gracious as a result. I will now choose to stop searching for greatness and start searching for authenticity. It was also lovely to hear fond references of Norwich, a beautiful city where I grew up, and Stratford-upon-Avon, where I've just moved to, which has felt very remote and isolating, but a town that is full of culture, history, and a soon-to-be thriving art scene. The references made me feel this episode was really meant to touch me at this time. It was, Josh. It was. Once again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you, and all that make the podcast possible. Your comrade, Josh. Well, Josh, listen, that made me well up a bit. I'm... I'm not ashamed to say that. I cry a lot. And um, I'm really pleased. Maybe that episode was especially for you. That's what I think. I like to think that every episode might hit different people in different ways. And I'm really pleased that the Reverend Richard Coles made you feel like that. I thought he was brilliant. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, I highly recommend it. I mean, I highly recommend my own podcast. That sounds a bit cringe. But it's a really great conversation. And it's more about him than it is about me. Uh, Thank you, Josh. And all the best with your um, with your acting career. I'm sorry that it's had such a damp squib of a start, but my mum often says, bad start, brilliant end. And so maybe, maybe that's how that's gonna be for you. Okay, here's another one. Firstly, if you use this, I'm absolutely fine with you using my real name. Can I start by saying that I've only recently come to your podcast and it's been like delving into a rather marvelous random tin of assorted biscuits very moorish and loads of great shapes and flavors i have been making a pig of myself and i absolutely love them i grew up in the 70s and 80s i was very much a tomboy enjoying such pursuits as tennis ball football remove the brick which is a game that you play to open up a hole in a brick in a wall in order to get the tennis ball back after it's been kicked into a neighboring garden i've never heard of that before but i love it and see who can throw the said removed brick furthest. Okay, that does sound a bit dangerous. I might put my foot down there. By the time I left school, I'd never heard the word gay or lesbian. I had no concept of either terms or what they meant. I was a shy chick 
and was never one of the girls who confidently trotted over the dating footbridge to end up in someone's arms for a grope or a snog. No, I hung back, convinced that if I went onto the bridge, I'd either put my foot through one of the slats or break my hip or slip and upend and go over the sides and break my neck on the rocks below so it's much safer to sit tight and view from afar. I went to uni in the early 90s and managed to make it across the footbridge. I wish I hadn't, but there we go. I briefly dated a chap. He was a bit weird. I split up with him over a pasty. Not because of a pasty-based incident, we just happened to be eating a pasty at the time. That was at uni. I wasn't overly keen on blokes, but it was only conceivable that men and a conventional heterosexual relationship were acceptable. I didn't even contemplate the possibility of a gay relationship. During this time, in my 20s and my 30s, I went out with a few guys and even lived with one for a couple of years. But as the cliche goes, something was missing. Fast forward to 2019, and I'm in my 40s, and I get put on a training course at work. I met a woman and was really, really attracted to her. I couldn't get her out of my head. Nothing happened, but it was a pivotal moment for me as I suddenly gone from a dimly lit small room to a flood-lit football pitch. The life I'd been living in dull, muted greys began to be infused with colour. For the first time in my life, I felt I properly fitted in my own skin. I felt confident in myself as myself. Since then, I've come out to my vicar and her curate, and both have been fabulously supportive. I haven't told my best mates or my parents yet, but the time is coming, I'm sure. I feel very positive about the future now. And with so many gorgeous women out there, what is not to like about the future? Now, this is something that has happened relatively later in life for me, and I'm trying to get my head around it. Not so much as a WTF, what has happened, that I like ladies. Something has turned up the volume on my sexuality. And the fact that I'm now a flower that has blossomed far later than most, so to speak. And as such, I'm beset by the worry that I'm somehow lesser a lesbian, that I'm a fraud, that I'm not genuine. But I can tell you, I have no doubt in both my head and my heart that I'm 100% gay. So, Susie, have you heard of any other women listeners with a story of late-blooming lesbianism similar to mine? Or is it just me? And I shall therefore hide in a shed on a windswept allotment growing cress on damp hankies. Much love and best wishes to you, your producer and your cat, Estelle. Well, Estelle, I can tell you that, um, first of all, that doesn't make you less a lesbian at all. And I'm sorry that you are beset with worry by that. Um, And I'm sure lots and lots of people are listening and thinking, oh, absolutely, that happened to me a bit later. I've actually invited one of my friends onto the show in a few weeks and she came out in her late 30s. Um, which I appreciate isn't, that's not old, but, you know, it's a bit older than some of us and, and some of the people listening. But um, so I, and I remember we had a, a letter in a couple of weeks ago where someone said a similar thing. So I think being a late bloomer, I mean, it doesn't matter at all. And I don't think anyone would see you as, as lesser a gay. Come to the party or as welcome here as anybody else. Uh, but thank you very much for, for writing in Estelle. And I don't think you need to hide in a shed and grow cress. I think I think you're going to be okay. Right, that's it. Thank you to those two wonderful people, Josh and Estelle, who wrote in this week. Please continue to write in. I love receiving the emails. Uh, the email is hello at com. Let's move on to today's interview. I had the absolute joy of interviewing Rita Loy. Um, she's absolutely brilliant. I, th- I think we've become friends. We've organised to go for a drink after lockdown. She seems absolutely brilliant. She's done some wonderful things. She's so interesting, so engaging. I just loved this conversation and I really hope you do too. Um, here it is, me chatting to Rita Loy. I am very excited to have Rita Loy on today's episode. Now, if you haven't heard of Rita, I mean, you should have. 
You really should have, guys, because I want to tell you all about her. She is an award-winning activist, a writer, a musician, a public speaker, a presenter, and a Gay Times cover star, as well as being the CEO of Gaysians. And I really love her writing. That's what I want to talk to you first about. It's always so engaging and has such a sense of passion about it. And often the themes include identity, gender, class, sexuality, and her work is featured in many publications, including Gay Times, Huffington Post, The Stylist, BBC, Bustle, and The Sunday Times. She's also a Forbes 100 Woman founder on the Guardian Pride Power List and has received an award for Outstanding Contribution to LGBT Life at the British LGBT Awards. Also, I would love to highlight a brilliant documentary that she made for Vice, which you can have a look on her website, which is about a gay marriage scam. Really, really interesting. I highly recommend you go and have a look at it. Uh, she's creating music. She's writing a book. She's writing articles. She's creating documentaries. She's a CEO. My first question, Rita, is when do you sleep? <laughs> Hello, and what an amazing intro. Thank you, Susie. That's, Welcome uh, to the show. I mean, you got a lot on. I have. Um, <laughs> when I've, I, To be honest, I haven't really heard it back like that before, so it sounds like a lot, and I kind of want to have a lie down and maybe retire after this. If you want to, I'll support you. <laughs> I, uh, I, yes, I work a lot and, um, I think it's just sort of in my nature. I'm Indian. Mm -hmm. My parents had a shop when I was a kid, so I was always working in the shop and, you know, did two paper rounds every morning and went and stocked shelves in the afternoons and, and it was a busy shop and a busy household, um, six of us in the family. So I think the sort of like the, the kind of active nature of my upbringing, just I think is, is just sort of bedded in this way of being. We were just saying before we started recording that we've seen each other at a number of uh, gay functions, which we decided mm. to call gunctions. And uh, we do the classic nod to each other where we're like, oh, hi, I kind of know who you are. Oh, hi, I kind of know who you are. But we've never yeah. actually said, oh, hello. Uh, so it's very nice to uh, actually meet you, even though it's sort of over the internet. It's sort of our first proper conversation, isn't it? It really is. And, and I'm really, really chuffed to have you on the show. I've, I really enjoy your writing. I love the stuff you've recently done with Gay Times. Thank I think you. it's brilliant. Um, so I don't really know where to start. Maybe let's start with Gaysians. We often start at the beginning of people's childhood, but why don't we start with Gaysians? For anyone that isn't aware of what Gaysians is, I know that you're the founder and the CEO. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So Gaysians is the umbrella brand for the South Asian LGBT plus community in the UK, um, increasingly becoming global, I'm very happy to say. But um, I started it about four years ago, um, nearly four years ago now. And it's a web platform, gaysians.org. And then we do a bunch of different sort of um, events and campaigns and activations and podcasts and all kinds of stuff, working with lots of network organizations that we work with. So we have 24 different partners or network organizations or alliances that we have with charities up and down the country that support our community. So that's everyone from Albert Kennedy Trust to, or AKT as they're called now, to NAS Project for Sexual Health or Carmen Nirvana for Mental Health. So we work with all these different organizations. They're faith, different faith organizations as well. So um, in South, South Asian communities aren't really well known for working together and aligning. You know, we don't tend to come together um, uh, to protest or or to build alliances. And that's for a number of different reasons. Um, one of those is that there are lots of different faiths that are, that 
have often been in conflict with each other and still are. So you have all these different people with different sets of identities and intersections who are somewhere on the LGBT plus space, but also somewhere in the South Asian space and have different faiths and, and backgrounds. And, you know, it's all very, very disparate. And so the reason I set up Gaysians was to bring everybody together under one banner because of my own experience as a queer South Asian girl where when I came out, I was disowned by my family. And I really struggled to find other people like me. I didn't know any other queer South Asian people. I didn't see them on the street. I didn't see them at gay bars. I didn't see them uh, Asian weddings. I didn't see them on TV. I didn't see them anywhere. So for me, I didn't know where to go to try and find other people like myself and really gain access to my culture, which I was missing, obviously, after being disowned, coming mm. from such a rich culture as well. So I spent many, many years trying to find people like me or find organizations that could help me uh, to feel connected or build community. And, and also with my mental health, so I really struggled without my family. Mm. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, after many, many years and, and after finding it quite tough, I started to find people um, and organizations and gradually started to build a sense of community and then put it onto a website, which was which is, like I said, made up of all these different organizations. But initially it was just things like a meetup for for Sikhs in Leicester or an organization for trans people in Wales and, you know, all these small things that were going on but making such a big impact to people's lives. Oh, I can imagine a huge impact. And it's, I mean, it's worth noting, it's hugely successful now. It is, yeah. So we just... Um, it just sort of took off. I set up the website and then a hundred of us marched at Pride in London um, back in 2017 now. Mm -hmm. And that was a real statement for us because a hundred queer South Asians getting together under one banner, like I said, of different faiths and backgrounds and sort of getting together and actually marching as a, as a, as a community was such a powerful experience for us, but also for people to see that, you know, for people to see us coming together like that sent a really strong message, I think. And there must've been so many people that are either closeted or younger people. You can imagine that so many young people will have seen you all and thought, oh my God, people like me exist. Yeah, massively. And I think, um, I think a lot of the media and press that came out of that event just kind of helped us yeah be visible I think that was the first thing really in terms of Gaysian sort of queer Asian here was our initial tagline and and the reason for that was that so many of us have spent so much time in isolation not knowing that there are other people like us and uh, you know, we come from countries where there's criminal legislation in place, which tells us that we're not even entitled to fall in love without being criminalized for it. And that's that's what our parents and grandparents have grown up with. So to give ourselves permission to firstly accept our sexuality, you know, the first coming out is always to yourself, isn't it? Absolutely. So to do that is such a such a huge step, especially when you're surrounded by systems that are telling you that that you can't be, or there's nobody like you, or you won't be supported, or your religious your religion disagrees with it, your culture disagrees with it, your motherland disagrees with it. So for you to first do that is huge. But I think the the next most powerful thing that I have that happens for most of us, I think, is meeting another Gaijin. And so even seeing one, you know, most of the messages that we get and that I get are from people around the world, um, including Pakistan and, and Bangladesh and India, from people that are saying, thank you and keep doing what you're doing. And and also a lot of vulnerable people who just need to know that there's somebody like them out there and they're not completely alone. Absolutely. I mean, that sense of community is so important and it's, I mean, it's vital. Yeah, totally. I think, you know, ev everybody belongs to some sort of community. And I think that 
whether that's your neighbors or it's your family or it's a your school friends, you know, a group of you that always hung out together and did certain things or a sporting team or something, you know, we, we're really drawn towards community, I think, as as human beings, you know, we're not meant to be solo creatures, I don't think. So uh, if we find that a lot of that community, it doesn't exist for us or it's been taken away, or we don't have access to it. I think it's really important to, to consider how we can start to develop that ourselves. So that's been, that's been the work of Gaysians. And I'm sure there might be people listening thinking, can you remind me of the of the website again, because I want to learn more about that. So it's gaysians.org. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay, great. So let's go back to, now I was quite interested to find out that you did a lot of your growing up in Winchester. I did indeed, yeah. Which is just around the corner from, well, a few miles down the road from where I grew up in Portsmouth. So you moved there when you were about four or five, is that right? Yeah, so we moved, I was born in Southall and uh, when uh, surrounded by Indian community and uh, growing up speaking Punjabi as my first language, um, my mum didn't speak English at the time. And yeah, surrounded by family and and culture and community. And then we moved to Winchester, which was um, a curveball when (laughs) I was six years old. Um, And I ended up uh, sort of somewhere as about as different to Southall as, as you can imagine. At the time, it was the, the wealthiest city in the country, it used to be the capital of England, steeped in history. We were the first Indian family to move there. I was going to say, I mean, it's, it's very white now. So I imagine then it was very white, very white indeed. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you know, as I got older, there were um, other Asians that I that I met, or Asian families that started to move there, and because uh, we started the trend, and then everyone followed us. You see, because that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, so it was literally like you'd point and stare if you saw another brown person, you know, um, because it was just so unusual to see anybody that that looked like you. So it was a very strange. It was a it's a real difference, yeah, to what we've been used to. And how was school? School was amazing. I loved school. When I started primary school, so I started when I was six, so I'd missed the first year of primary school in Winchester. And my dad took me into to the school and I met my headmaster, Mr. Malloy, who was a total legend. <laughs> and he was the easiest, the tallest man I'd ever seen in my life. And I remember sort of looking up at him and sort of seeing his head disappear into the distance. And he was just the nicest man. And I think he'd he he sort of took the time to understand and listen to my dad in terms of us being different in terms of the fact that you know my English wasn't as good because it was my second language that I'd had a very different type of upbringing culturally and socially you know my integration would be sort of different to maybe the kids that that Mr Malloy had been been used to and I think that conversation with my dad was really fundamental actually because uh, the care that I had from the teachers and the sort of acceptance I had was so beautiful. And the other kids were just amazing. Like I, I just had nothing but beautiful, positive experiences. They were just really interested in this little brown sort of dolly. Like I had long, long hair down to my bum in a plait, like really thick, dark brown hair. And and I was I was quite a cute kid. I had a little moustache. <laughs> um which I wish I hadn't had lasered off now because um, I would totally grow it. But um, yeah, there was no bullying or anything like that. They were just really inquisitive and really interested in where I'd come from and and India and my family. And, you know, my accent was really um, working class as well. So I was like, ain't it? You know what I mean? Very London. And then the the kids in my class, would, a few of the girls would take me to the loos at lunchtime and they would teach me 
RP basically, and they'd say it isn't. It's isn't it, darling? It's isn't it? Um, and so you know, just really strange things like that. But just really welcoming, really loving. And our, our RE teacher, um, who I had a tiny crush on, I have to say, um, she brought in um, some some classes about Hinduism and mythology and spirituality, and meditation, all kinds of stuff that you know, really welcomed me as well. What a wonderful school. Yeah, it was brilliant. St. Bede School in Winchester, absolutely amazing school. Yeah, I was very lucky. And was it quite a religious upbringing at home? It wasn't massively religious. My um, my dad's family are Sikh and my mum's family are Hindu. Um, my dad's family converted to Sikhism sort of in his generation. And when there, there were weddings and there were visits to the temple and stuff, but because we'd... I mean, there are weddings like every week in our family, right? I got a lot of cousins, but the weddings were kind of where a lot of the religious elements and components came into my world or when I was spending time with older family members, uh, you know, aunts and and grandparents who were religious and had ceremonies. So it was always around me. Um, And my dad loved to talk about storytelling around religion and his time in India and growing up and stuff. So there was all this kind of this melting pot, I guess, because my school was Church of England. So then there were prayers and hymns and all this kind of stuff. So there was kind of melting pot of different faiths that I was growing up with um, that I'm really grateful for, actually. What were you like? Were you because obviously, you know, you're a public speaker now and you're very, very good at it. Were you confident? I'd say I was a pretty confident kid. Yeah, I was pretty confident. It's really strange to me now because I was so genderqueer as a kid. And um, what do you mean by that? So this is a this is a really patriarchal culture that I come from, and my family is extremely patriarchal. And so the girls are sort of married off by seventeen. Um, everyone had had an arranged marriage before me. All my cousins, all my aunts and uncles, my parents included. And so uh, the girls aren't supposed to go into further education. The girls are supposed to be in the kitchen. You're not allowed to date. Um, it's super, super conservative and strict. But I was out playing football and riding my BMX and hanging out with the boys all the time. And I totally dressed like a boy. And, and no one ever said anything, which is really odd because there was so much. It was so disciplinarian in my home. It was super strict, but I wasn't allowed to go to friends' houses, wasn't allowed to have friends over. There was There was a real sort of fixation on not integrating beyond a certain point you know right and is that because your parents wanted you to sort of I don't know keep your heritage and keep your culture and not be too western or too Winchester I think there's a (laughs) I think it's very common for um, diaspora communities particularly first and second generation to to really try and retain a sense of the motherland um culturally, socially, religiously, you know, because there's, there's a feeling of judgment. I think, I think there's a feeling of, there's a feeling of fear, you know, um, you've left your, your motherland, um, you've been displaced. You don't have generational wealth or power. You're having to build all of that from scratch. Mm -hmm. Um, your, uh, family network and system that you do find where you go, maybe, maybe slightly fractured. Um, so for example, by moving to Winchester, my parents were further away from that community. We weren't immersed in an Asian community at all. So they were more isolated. So in that sense, they were stricter than I think some, some of my peers' families were at that time. Right. Okay. Um, and I think there's a certain idea about Western ideals that are very different, you know, for a family like mine. So the idea that, you know, I was supposed to have an arranged marriage because, that's what we always did. And I'd watched all my cousin sisters 
been married off and it was getting closer to my turn and I was kind of freaking out because I just didn't relate to it. I think the idea that, you know, your daughters may basically bring shame on the family. So this idea of bringing shame on the family is such a big thing, you know, um, because I think our parents felt like they're kind of being observed by the family in India and they had to retain certain customs and, and culture and they'd they'd failed if they didn't do that. Yeah, because I, I, in one interview you said that you felt like you'd been raised in like a time capsule, which I thought was a really interesting way of putting it. Yeah, I feel like it is that. I kind of, I used to think, you know, my parents have got this photo in their back pocket that they hold on to, which is like a, a snapshot of a village in India, you know, or the Bind as we call it. And that that romanticized image doesn't really exist because it only exists in their minds. And it's it is a fantasy because you know, it's a romanticized idea of their childhood um, in a place that actually doesn't even exist anymore if it ever did in the first place. And so they're trying to hold on to that and recreate that. And because that's not available around them, they're kind of overcompensating for it. But I do feel like it's a time capsule because it's their idea of what home is, which is borrowed from a place back home. And and India's really moved on and evolved and changed. Um, and it's not that place anymore like I said. So I think we are raised in a in a bit of a fantasy land and time capsule of their creation. And, you know, when you go to other Asian people's homes, like there are so many things that we share and have in common that is some kind of unwritten code of just general chintziness that only Asians understand. You know, we all have like the same kind of plastic runners down the hallway that hurt your feet when you walk on them. They're such a terrible design. I don't know how they sold so many of those. And then like plastic covering on the sofas and there's a particular smell and there's always incense and, you know, you always have Bombay mix. There are these are very particular things that when you go to India, that's not what people do. No, no. <laughs> right? So it's, it's, there's a sort of, I don't know, there's a certain British Asian culture that's been created that, that, is, that is a creation of our parents' generation, I think. And in like, I guess, a sort of rose-tinted idea of that as well. Yeah, definitely. Like a longing for something. Yeah, because I think often they haven't left because they wanted to. You know, my dad came here at 13 with my grandfather, who was a soldier in the British Indian Army. And after partition, he brought his sons to the UK to work. And my mum came over to marry him in her late teens. Talking about your parents, I mean, it must have been such a culture shock for them to come here. What was it like as a teenager in Winchester? I know you said your sort of junior school was so, well, I mean, it just sounds incredible. But what was what was secondary school like for you? It was so bleak, man. Like, oh, really? Okay. Secondary school was bleak. Like, I mean, school was great, but being a, being a teenager, school was great because it's where I got to hang out with my mates mm-hmm. and essentially socialise. It was the only time that I wasn't in my family home, right? Right. So school was everything to me. That It was my, my social kind of hub. I, I think from being in the shop, I'd been used to meeting so many different types of people. So I've always been curious about people and interested in people. And so that kind of translated into school as well. I had different friends that were all kinds of different people. So I really loved school. What I didn't love was the fact that um, everyone was starting to kind of go out now, like on a Friday night and I wasn't allowed. And I was like the only kid that wasn't allowed on top of being brown. And I was getting kind of like really annoyed with it. Um, But I did plan to, to escape for a night one night and I... 
I got dolled up and I was going to go to Marlene's birthday party at Charlie's Wine Bar up the road, which was a place that let you in if you were underage, like quite a few places in Winchester back then. Um, Same with Portsmouth. Oh. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, ch- I chickened it and I, I chickened out of it and I couldn't do it. I um, And I thought if I get caught, I'm in so much trouble. So I didn't do it. It's just not worth it, mate. Actually, yeah, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been worth it. <laughs> so, at yeah. what point did you realise that you weren't straight, or that you? I don't know. I don't exactly know how you describe yourself. Is it queer? Um, I don't know. I, I it sort of evolves and changes how I define myself. As I guess, as I evolve, I feel like none of the words to define my sexuality have ever really felt quite right. I t- I've tended to use gay quite a lot. Yeah, me too, actually. Yeah, instead of lesbian, lesbians always felt a bit like. I don't know, not the one, you know, it sort of like has so many connotations to it. And it's, it has been uh, bastardized for want of a better word. Mm. Um, so I kind of never massively related to that, but I kind of much like the word woman, I kind of use woman and I use lesbian more as political terms than anything else. Do I really identify with them both? Not really. I think I uh, have probably in the last few years become much more conscious of my gender space being, fluid and um I don't know I'd never really thought about my gender space I always kind of thought I'm gay and actually when I was a kid I actually was attracted to boys and girls and I thought everybody was in fact I still do if I'm honest but when I was a kid I thought that was normal and um, I had no queer people around me that I knew of and no reference point but that's just how I felt and so I remember I was playing out the back of the car in the car park at the back of the shops the row of shops we used to hang out in this car park we were playing chase and um one of the boys from from the chip shop said who do you fancy and I said Julie who was his sister and he laughed at me and told everyone including Julie who was one of my best mates and I was mortified and I was like oh no this is so not cool I should have said that so um I quickly realized that it was it was not something you talked about is what I thought. So I didn't talk about it. What sort of age were you when you realized that you might fancy Julie? Well, uh, that Julie time was probably when I was like, I don't know, about eight. Right. Yeah. Quite little. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, okay, you're not going to talk about this. And then um, I obviously then wasn't having the usual kind of sexual exploration my friends were having with boys, right? Mm -hmm. Because my parents were so strict, I wasn't allowed to, to have boyfriends. So I think like a lot of Asians probably worked out my sexuality a bit later on. Right. Because it wasn't a natural progression from my from my early teens, like it is for most people. So what sort of age were you when you were working it out? Um, I, when I was at sixth form, I, uh, I fancied so many girls at sixth form. Oh, my God. And it was excruciating. And, uh, yeah, I still didn't know any queers. And um, I think by this point, the, the Brookside kiss had happened. So I knew there was a thing. That kiss comes up oh, so much in this podcast. <laughs> I bet. Um, but prior to that, I had watched some of my... So so I'd watched some German um, 70s porn that had some lesbo action in, which was one of the best things that ever happened uh, as a teenager was when my parents were at work. So I used to go into my dad's wardrobe and put his clothes on and try his suits on and stuff when he was at work, right? And, and then put them back like really carefully. And I actually only even remembered this quite recently. So I was really into these kind of three-piece suits and waistcoats and ties and 
sick outfits that he had, very well-dressed guy. Um, and one day I noticed that there were some VHS tapes at the back of the wardrobe. So I was curious, as I am as a person, sure. and I decided to see what they were. And so I started watching them and it was like I'd struck gold, basically. It was, I don't know, a ton of VHSs that were all 70s German porn and they were spectacular. So there were all kinds of things in there. Um, but uh, my one of my favorites, unsurprisingly, was the one which had some lesbian lovemaking in it. And um, yeah, that that was my first kind of, I guess... One of my early realizations that there was such a thing as, mm-hmm. as you know, same-sex attraction for women and, and sex. Oh, and I also found a copy of Emmanuel when I was doing my paper round one morning. Um, and that uh, blew my mind. What, what's Emmanuel? I feel like Emmanuel I should is a, I think it was, I think it's like 1974 or something it was published. And it's a, uh, it's an erotic novel about this chick who is very into sex, basically, with men and women. And uh, so there are threesomes, there's uh, sex with men, there's sex with women. Um, And basically, I think I was about 12 or 13 when I found this and, and that. Where did you find it? On my paper round. So I went into this estate to deliver the papers. I did two paper rounds every morning and I found this, there was this yellow uh, book and it was a bit weather beaten and I used to find so much cool stuff on my paper rounds. So I went and picked it up and uh, being curious and I uh, started reading it and was just completely overjoyed to find that it was sexual. And not only was it sexual, but it centered the woman. It was about her sexual desire and I had never... I'd never known of women to be able to do that. I grew up in a culture that was that where women are very submissive, you know, Bollywood films that I was watching in my home growing up had a very um, patriarchal and um, nature and, and sex is kind of under the ownership of the men. It's the men that choose the bride. It's the men that pursue the woman in our films, you know, and the women keep saying no and it's completely non-consensual, but the guy turns up in your house and you're marrying him before you know it and it's supposed to be romantic. All these really weird, messed up ideas that we have that are very conservative where the onus is really on the men. So to be proactive as a sexual being in your sexual power as in a, in a woman's body, I had never seen before. Um, right. And so, you know, even sort of in, in my family sort of, aunts and uncles and stuff, you know, the, the men would be flirtatious with their wives and the wives would be very much like, he, 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 and very shy. And it's just like, you know, that's just what I thought it was. That's how I thought it was supposed to be. And so it wasn't until I read that book that I was like, wow, okay, here's a woman. She's having sex with men and women and she's owning it. Yeah. And I don't know, I think it probably gave me a lot of permission in a lot of ways or opened up my mind in a way that that may not have otherwise until much later. So you were at sixth form... You had maybe a few crushes on a few girls at sixth form. Sure, we've yeah. all been there. Yeah. At what point did you think, oh, okay, I this might be more than just a crush. I might be sort of quite different. Um, I really suppressed it. So I don't think I ever went as far as really questioning it. I literally just would have attraction to two girls and then just sort of put it away, you know, Um is the is the only way I have to describe it. It's just a sort of suppressing of of those thoughts. Um and yeah, it wasn't till I was at university um when I was 18 that I uh had my first experience 
um, with a woman where this this girl who um, was really horrible to me, actually. So I'd got to uni, which was really bloody hard because I was meant to be married off by now. And, well, that's um, what I was about to, to to ask. Did you have to really fight for that? Hell yeah, I had to really fight for that because I was being told... You know, I remember being about five or six years old and and my mum saying something to me like, when do you get married, blah, blah, blah. She was telling me off about something and I was just like, I'm not getting married. And my mum literally like chased me around the house with a slipper. Indian mums, there should be like an Olympic sport for Indian mums throwing their slippers because they're so good at it. And my mum would totally get gold because she could totally get you around the ear with it from the other side of the room. Um, so I ran off and she was absolutely furious that I'd said I wasn't getting married. So I knew from a really young age that it, that it wasn't something, the path I was seeing ahead of me wasn't for me. So I was lucky that, um, I went to school in Winchester, went to really good schools and I had a dad that really encouraged me to study and he really centered my education because he had never finished school and he knew that. He's a really bright man, and he he knew that there would be so much opportunity for me with an education, even though I was a girl, even though I was a daughter. Um, and you know, his brothers were there, kind of. Um, they're much more conservative than him, so the idea of a daughter going to university was unheard of. Um, but I don't know because I was a bit of a boy, I guess, and I was into cars and bikes and football and I I spent a lot of time with my dad I think he kind of saw me as a bit of a son I don't know but I studied really hard and I started to work out there was this thing called university that my friends had started talking about and I knew that I didn't want an arranged marriage I knew that if I stayed at home that's what would happen I explored options of running away Um, I didn't feel like that was what I wanted to do because I was worried about my younger sisters. Um, in particular, I've got two sisters and a brother. They're all younger than me. I was worried about my younger sisters being married off to complete strangers. That was the threat I grew up with, is that if I stepped out of line, that my siblings would be married off to to strangers in India. They're really good at emotional blackmail, my parents. Um, yeah, that's, that's a lot of weight for a young person to carry. Yeah, it's heavy. It is heavy. And so I felt a real responsibility to make sure that didn't happen to them, but also to not let it happen to me either. So what I was left with was this, well, I was left with essentially university. That was the goal that I really wanted. That was like the best solution I could think of. Um, and I contemplated suicide. Um, my mental health wasn't great uh, as, a, as a teenager. Um, again, I didn't think that was the best solution for, for everybody. And I, I knew how much it would, it would hurt my family. So I went for the uni option and I studied really hard. And I, um, I sat down with my, well, I, I mentioned it to my dad. I, 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 I was probably about 13 or 14 or something. And he was like, immediately, no, you know, that's not something we do. Um, that's not something girls do. And so um, I thought, okay, I'm going to have to keep pushing at this. So I picked up a copy of the Financial Times from the shop and I opened up the job section, sat down with my dad and I said, look, there's this thing called marketing and it's a new thing and I've been studying at school and I'm really good at it and obviously because you've raised me to be able to run a shop effectively so I was working at the till from the age of six standing on a tool on a stool I was doing I was like 
you know, when computers came out, I was learning how to use accountancy software. Um, so I was kind of learning a lot of stuff by being in this business every day. And he was really willing to to teach me stuff too. So I was like, look, you know, I can, I can do this. And also I had my own business um, when I was, so when I was at primary school, I um, would take football stickers and sweets in for kids at school. <laughs> and I think it started. This is great. The way it started was my dad was clearing out the stock room and he found this, but we just bought the shop. So he's clearing out the stock room, go in the stock room and he's got this box in front of him and he hands me these stickers, right? And they're these, these gold foil stickers with this British bulldog on and they're from the World Cup. I can't remember when it was, 84 or something. And uh, they were out of date, right? But he had loads of them and he's like, do you want these? And I was like, yeah. And uh, so he hands them to me. And so I was like, what do I do with them? And he was like, why don't you sell them to your mates at school for, you know, a couple of pence each or something? And I was like, all right. So I did. And they sold like hotcakes, man. Like, so I was like, this is great. And then obviously I was really popular, right? So this helped me kind of, I guess, feel maybe more accepted as the brown kid, the new kid. I'd missed a year of schooling because I'd come a year, year after these kids that had already bonded. Maybe that was my way of kind of, befriending people and then I started to bring in like yeah football stickers so I would like collect football stickers myself anyway but all the like really really best players I could get some good money for them I could get 10 15p so um then I started to take like smash hits and you know whatever you know whatever we had in the shop that was in demand you know so then I started taking orders for like monster munch and chew and stuff and you know I would just my parents would let me have stuff as well because I was always working in the shop and then I started to make money and then I started to do paper rounds. So then I was getting like, I don't know, about nine pound a week for each paper round. I was seeing two paper rounds. So then I started putting all of that into stock. And then by the time I got to secondary school, I was hitting up three shops on the way to school and taking like massive orders. So every morning I'd get in early and I'd be, I'd be selling whatever people wanted, you know, fags, you know, magazines, impulse body spray to spray yourself after you've been smoking, stuff like that. Um, and yeah, so that's actually how I paid for university. That that paid for my first year of university. That that wow. tech shop enterprise, yeah. And without that, I would never have been able to convince my parents to let me go. So the combination of like there being a new thing called marketing, that was now a degree, um, the Financial Times job section having marketing director jobs listed as sixty k a year, which was an unfathomable amount of money to to my dad. Um, and so the idea that, you know, started sort of that option started to open up for him. And the other, the other completely amazing thing that happened at the time uh, that was very fortuitous for me to get to university was there was a grant system at the time that the government had in place that enabled, um, me and other kids like me and actually all the friends that I, that I've kept for life since then, who also come from, working class or, or slightly more disadvantaged backgrounds, um, culturally and financially, um, in terms of getting access to university, we were able to, to get in. Um, and we, you know, that wouldn't happen now. So I think there were a number of different forces at work that allowed me to get out of, of that home, um, uh, avoid arranged marriage and get to university, um, where I discovered I was gay. <laughs> Did you love uni? I loved uni. Yeah. Where did you go? I went to Greenwich. It was it was um, the first university to do a marketing degree, and it was London. Right, okay, so great. This comes up a lot in the podcast. Did you feel? Because this is how I felt. I felt like London was the place to be. 
yeah it's like oh, I couldn't imagine going London. anywhere else. yeah exactly yeah. I mean I'd I'd grown up um my dad was a bus driver in London so I'd grown up going on the buses with him being his first customer oh. of the day and and being driven around London by my chauffeur as far as I saw it um with the best seat in the house on the top deck and so I really I loved London as a kid so I guess I always had a romanticized ideal of of London much like my parents kept that romanticized ideal of, of their motherland did London meet your expectations did London deliver uh, yeah yeah absolutely um, do you still live here now? I do, yeah. Yeah, me um, too. Yeah, I'm in Hackney. I love London. I've always loved London. I will always love London. It's I found it a little bit challenging since since uh, the whole Brexit thing started mm-hmm. um, because of my experiences just in terms of walking down the street and people feeling that they have permission to um, be volatile, which I think has definitely increased in terms from my personal experience alone in that time. But that that aside, um, I still love London, and um, yeah, it brings me great joy to to live here. And so, did you come out at uni? I got outed at uni. Oh, um, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. It was kind of uh, it was yeah. So I started uni, and obviously, can you imagine? Like, I'd never even like I'd never been out to a club. Right. So oh, it must have blown your mind. <laughs> yeah, it totally blew my mind. Firstly, I thought I was going to London and I was in sort of SE18 um, and really far away from from what I thought was was London. But I had a, I made great friends and there was a real community around there of, of other students and stuff. And it was very multicultural as well. But um, yeah, when I started uni, I started going out with this guy who was really hot um this guy called Cass and everyone fancied Cass and I was really chuffed that he'd picked me to to be his girlfriend and um for some reason I don't know what it was but I was not vibing on the sexual front with Cass right so like he was he was like he was great in bed he he could do all the moves he could do everything but I just just wasn't really working for me right so all my mates were like totally hyped that I was going out with Cass but I was a bit like yeah you know, he's nice to hang out with, but I don't know why it's not really jamming, right? So, like, that was kind of a red flag, right? Mm-hmm. And then, um, so I broke up with Cass, and then I was at this student union party one Thursday. So I was dancing, and this girl called Louise, who um, was the only person that was mean to me at uni, she was on my call, she was in my same halls of residence, but she was always a bit mean, and I didn't understand why she didn't like me, because I was desperate to be liked. And um, so I was super nice to everybody, and I um, I was dancing, I was a bit drunk, and, and so Louise comes up to me and she kisses my neck in front of everybody at the student union. And I was like, oh my God, what is she doing? Oh my God, this feels really good, what's happening? And then uh, I was I was really freaked out because it was really sexual and I really liked it and it was it felt like it like I shouldn't shouldn't be doing that right mm-hmm. and um, so uh, afterwards we went back to halls and we're in Louise and I are in the kitchen outside her room and she says to me have you ever kissed a girl and I said no <laughs> like gross um, and. She didn't say anything, and I was like, "Oh no, like, uh, shit, I missed my chance." This is eighteen-year-old me, right, baby? And so I then said, "Have you ever kissed a girl?" Like, clambering around for something to say, and she was like, "Yeah," which I later found out was a lie, by the way. <laughs> um, and so then I said something that I'm so proud of. 
like peak moment, right? I said, so kiss me then, right? And oh she God, did. So I know, so confident, so confident. Um, so young and foolish and confident. But she, uh, so she, and she kissed me and it was just the most amazing kiss. And so we had this beautiful kiss, this passionate kiss. And then we ended up in her bed and we kind of rolled around in our bra and knickers, not knowing what to do because neither of us knew what we were doing and had blatantly never done this before. So like there was, it was kind of like sexual, but not sex because we didn't know what to do. Um, so we just kind of rolled around and on this kind of tiny little university plastic bed and kind of went ah, ah, quite a lot and snogged and <laughs> kind of got freaked out by each other's tits. And, and that was kind of it. And then <laughs> passed out eventually. And then the next morning I snuck out wondering what the fuck had just happened and then went to my room and um, didn't know what to do. Told the girl in the next room, a friend of mine, who sort of her, I think her response kind of told me that it was wrong because she freaked out about it. And um, <clears throat> that kind of reinforced my own fear. Um, it reinforced my own fear because uh, I felt like I'd done something wrong already. Right. Um, because I, because of all the aforementioned reasons culturally, I was going to university to avoid re- arranged marriage. I really didn't have time to, for the gay thing. This was not part of my plan. Being gay was not part of my plan, man. So I had enough on my plate. And were you really aware that that wasn't going to be acceptable? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I was raised not being allowed to date my eldest cousin's sister, had run away with her black boyfriend the night before her wedding, the first wedding in our family in the UK, and had been disowned. And I had learned from a very young age that you had to toe the line. Um, And uh, we weren't allowed to have boyfriends, let alone boyfriends of different races or different faiths um, or even a different caste. So the idea of a same-sex relationship was seriously off the cards so for me I was still in shock you know I was hungover and I was heading into into my lectures and Louise was at the bloody lectures too and there are about 500 of us in in an auditorium and we all go out for our fag break and um Louise is being hyper flirtatious with me and it's really freaking me out I'm super uncomfortable and um just really freaking out that people are going to find out I mean obviously because I told a friend and, and the response had been one of shock and so after lectures, I sheepishly went back to Hall's residence to go back to my room and I bump into Susan, beautiful Irish lass, who was uh, coming down the, the stairs and um, she said, I've heard something about you and Louise <laughs> and lesbianism. I'm sorry, that's a terrible Irish accent, but it's the best I can do. And the word lesbianism I, I don't think I'd ever even heard the word before out loud and certainly not in reference to me. And I was just like, what? Like, how the fuck does she even know, right? So obviously the word was out. Louise was telling everyone. I was freaking out. So I got outed. And then the repercussions of that were that all of my Asian friends, um, so there was a really, really mixed ethnicity in at the university and it was the first time I was really socializing with with other Asians that I wasn't related to. When I started uni, there was kind of this expectation that I was going to hang out with the Asians. And 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 I was a bit like I hang out with everybody. So I was already a bit, uh, I was slightly already an other in relation to my relationship with them. Also having grown up in a, in a very, very 
like white English city, right? So, um, yeah, so they all basically stopped talking to me. So all the Asians stopped talking to me, which was like another red flag of this is how Asians feel about your sexuality and this is how your family will respond. So um, I found that, and, and it wasn't just the Asians, it was was generally across the board, there was a real kind of resistance to uh, homosexuality at the university I was at at that time. Um, and I didn't know any other queer people still. So yeah, that, that, yeah, I was outed and then there was a lot of disassociation, particularly by the Asians, I would say. That must've been really hard. Yeah, it was. I think I kind of like isolated myself. I kind of hung out in my room and, and smoked a lot of weed and I went out and I, I'd kind of got into ease by that point. So I was, I was doing quite a lot of ecstasy and speed. I was, I was doing drugs, I think. Like, I don't know how normal that is as a uni experience, but like most of us were at that time. Um, and so I was just kind of raving a lot. And I had a few friends that were that were super cool with me, who are still my friends now. And um, and we hung out. But it kind of changed the landscape of, of my university experience, I think, at that point, because of that kind of queer element. So did you really bury your queerness after that? Yeah, I did. I got a boyfriend. That's what I did. Right. So then I got a boyfriend who was a, a really good friend of mine and still is. And uh, he uh, was 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 there and being a great friend and really supportive. And we were hanging out loads. And we, I don't know, one day he just kissed me. And then I was like, okay. There were two kind of things really that happened for me. It was like, one was okay, here's a guy that I really adore and I feel really safe with and who loves me and I love him and he's into me. So kind of why not was the first kind of thought. Um, The other one was a bit like, oh, how disappointing. Like, why do guys always have to hit on you, you know? And um, I think also the undercurrent of that first thought was something that I've learned about myself as I've got older is that, I hadn't learned at that point how to set boundaries. I hadn't learned that I could say no. And certainly growing up, as you mentioned previously, watching those films where, you know, a man being unbelievably persistent was seen mm. as romantic. Yeah. So the idea of idea of consent, you know, I have friends, I have Indian female friends around the world and wherever wherever they are in the world, we all share this the same experience of not having really learned how to set boundaries um because as i think as asian women we we our boundaries are crossed from the day that we're born and we're really there to serve our partner our families the men in our family our elders so we're there to fulfill a function and when we when we arrive at a certain age we go and do that for another family um that's what we're trained to be you know i've been trained to be a really excellent housewife but i haven't been trained in how to really hear my voice and communicate it and feel safe and heard, um, and to really identify what my boundaries are in any aspect. And so um, that leads to a kind of tendency to prioritize the other and and silence your own voice. Um, so for me to find my own voice has been such a massive journey because of because of the, the roots of, of where I come from and my experiences. But I think in that situation, I thought all of these things were, were at play, and so I went with it. And... Uh, had a very loving relationship with him for a year and a half. 
And uh, it was really beautiful. And it's very strange in terms of trying to define, this is why I find defining my sexuality quite difficult because I have had really loving sexual relationships with men in the past, mm-hmm. albeit a very long time ago. And it's not something that I am drawn to, but at the same time, you know. They happened. They happened and they were really beautiful and I'm really grateful for that. So, um, yeah, and then I came to my final year of uni and I was aware that I would, very aware that I was going back to live with my family and um, back in Winchester, back in a home where I wouldn't be allowed to go out and see my friends. And was it just not an option for you to stay no. In London with your friends, right? No, it was, I didn't feel it was. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it, of course it was, but the what I was being told was that my siblings, my sisters would be married off um, and that I had to come home. And um, that was the expectation. I mustn't bring shame on the family. And I was aware of all my younger cousin sisters as well and the impact that my actions would have on them. And so, uh, you know, I think my oldest cousin... Uh, running away um, in in the very epic way that she did the night before her wedding with lots of family over from India and stuff. It had really kind of tightened the grip on on the girls and women in our family, I think, more so. And so I was I was reluctant to ha- have that happen more so. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I, I was aware that I was moving back to my parents. I knew I'd have to meet potential husbands. I didn't know what I was going to do about it, but I knew I had to – I had to buy, I thought if I could buy another two to three years for my sisters and they could get to university, then I was good. So I was like, okay, I just need to try and swerve marriage for two or three years, right? That was the next plan. But before that, I had a year left at uni and I was like, you know what, I just I just need to sort out this gay thing, man. And I spoke, I spoke to him and I was like, I love you. He wanted to get married and all this stuff. And I was just like, you know, how have I ended up in a situation where I'm I, where I, like I'm with somebody who wants to marry me? I'm trying to avoid marriage. Remember, Beats, yeah, avoid marriage. I've struggled to avoid marriage, as you may have noticed. Um, so then I uh, was like, okay, I'm just going to have a really gay final year. So I ended the relationship, and I was like, right, I'm going to live my best gay life, and I'm going to go for it. And back then, I made an amazing friend called Charlotte, um, and we worked at Brixton Academy together. And um, we would go out raving and she she was straight, but she had gay friends and she had access to queer spaces and knew about them. So she started taking me out. So she would take me to Candy Bar and Vespa Lounge and, and all these completely like lesbo and dyke fueled places where I would totally brick it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know what it's like, those first times of going into lesbo bars are so scary. Oh, but um, so... Um... So scary, but like so exciting, and your tummy's like doing a thousand flips. But at the same time, you're like, look cool, be cool, yeah, yeah, terrifying. Yeah, like I just I remember like the first time she took me to Vespa Lounge. Like I walked in, and it was like I'd walked into like a vampire movie, and I was like this slab of meat that just been thrown in. And I just, I was petrified. There were all these women looking at me and I kind of, I didn't know what to do. And I was too scared to give eye contact. And like, we went and like stood at the back because I was freaking out. And then this really hot girl looked at me and I, and Charlotte was like, come and talk to her, go and talk to her. And I was like, no, 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 I need to get out of here. Um, but yeah, like after a while, I kind of obviously got into, obvi- very obviously got into the swing of things. Yeah, decided to just go for it and and went out a lot, met different different girls uh fucked about and just 
had a jolly good time and sort of didn't really care at that point what people at uni thought of me. But, you know, had some really, really solid mates as well. So then at the end of that, I was like, yep, I'm gay. And then you had to go home. Went back to Winchester. Winchester. Yeah. And the funny thing is, at this point, Louise, remember Louise was like, um, you, you shouldn't go back. You should stay and stuff. And I just didn't feel like I could. And I didn't feel like anybody really understood the cultural space that I was coming from and what that was like. Um, you know, I didn't feel like my friends really understood. You know, I had a couple of Asian friends who were, were straight, who understood me culturally. And I had queer friends who weren't Asian. So it was like, I couldn't reconcile these two parts of myself, my culture and my sexuality. So I went back uh, to Winchester, went and got a really good job um, for this tech consultancy, bought some suits, got a car, got credit cards, did all the things that that I think you you were supposed to do. I don't know. I don't know where I was learning. This was how you did things, but I was learning it from somewhere. And my parents were were all over it they were like trying to match make like all over the place everyone in my family was on it right the pressure man seriously like so what was happening was like so I noticed that the Indian dresses or lenge that were coming that being sent to me from India by my uncles were getting more and more extravagant and beautiful and I was like, oh, shit, you know. And then every time there was a wedding, I'd be pushed to the front of photos and I'd be like dragged onto the dance floor. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not making, I don't want anyone to see me because then I'm going to get married off, right? So there's certain things like you just don't do. Like, and I've, I've written about this in my book, like how to avoid an arranged marriage basically is a whole chapter, which is the tips and tricks to try and swerve it. So, yeah, so I, I, I did meet a potential, couple of potential husbands, actually. There was one that I met um, pretty early on after getting back to my, my family home. He was so sweet, this guy. My mum's aunt, right, who I call Gangster Nanni because she she's actually my real nan. My real nan was in India, and this was her sister, and so she was the closest to I had to uh, a nan, right? Mm-hmm. And um, in the UK, and so she she was like she'd wear like she's kind of like centrally obese, would always wear Punjabi suits and with a cardigan over the top, which is like a real look for Asian women, um, like really chintzy cardigans with little plastic like beads and pearls and stuff on. That's the thing, and then she would um, always kind of smell of incense and fags. And uh, so she smoked Benson Hedges Gold, right? Yeah. And uh, which is really, really, yeah. It is, yeah, it is a strong smell. And uh, so she would just blatantly be smoking fags, which is such a weird thing for a woman of her generation to be doing, right? But Mm -hmm. I don't know how she did it. That's why I call her gangster nonny. So she, she, there's a lot of prestige for the person that, that bring, that is the matchmaker. Right. In the family. So, like, whoever that person is, they're really treated like gold, right? So um, she wanted to be that person, you know. So on her side of the family, I was the first grandchild. So she really wanted to be that person that that matched my my wedding. So she set me up with some dude, right? So we all pile in the, into the car. I'm wearing like one of these fancy Indian dresses that my uncle send over. And uh, everyone's doled up. My mom's wearing this like awful perfume that she always would wear that was like way too strong in the car for like two hours. We're driving the six of us in the car, classic Indians, too many people in the car. And so we drive, no one's wearing a seatbelt, et cetera. We drive to Southall from Winchester. 
we get to my dad's in like one of his paying suits. We get into the house and basically I walk in and I know I'm meeting a potential husband and all I'm thinking is I just like basically it's going to be a no for me. Um, So we go into the lounge. There's this guy. There's his brother, his brother's wife, his brother's two kids, um, his parents and his grandparents sitting in this tiny little living room with one sofa at Gangsanani's house. Um, And then there's us, six of us, right? My three siblings, my parents, and obviously my Gangsanani and and Nanna, right? And so it's a full house. It's well over the top, right? Everyone's dressed in their best garms. And I'm meeting this guy I've never met before with a view to marrying him. And we're allowed 15 minutes to talk to each other. But before that, I'm serving up samosas and and chai and being good housewife and doing all of that stuff to this really awkward living room situation my mum and gangster nanny are like freaking out really stressing in the kitchen um about making sure everything's perfect then me and the and the guy get our 15 minutes together and i'd heard about you get this 15 minutes where you sit on your own and you talk to each other from my cousins so we go upstairs to a bedroom, which is just weird as well, right? So you go and sit in a bedroom because there's no other room. So we're sitting in my cousin's bedroom and we're sitting on this bed, me and this guy I've never met before. Considering they're so strict about me hanging out with any boys, they let me loose on this guy in a bedroom for 15 minutes, right? They're completely mad. Um, so uh, anyway, so he's super sweet, this guy. like, And he's got this big moustache. It's just adorable. And um, like now I would love that moustache, but at the time it was very uncool. And he was like, you know, he just, he just sort of stared and smiled at me and twinkled his eyes at me. And then he was like, um, and my mum had been like, he's a very good job. He works in IT and uh, lives in Langley five bedroom house. Right. And I was just like, mum, like there are like 14 people living in that five bedroom house. Right. So let's just get real about this. Okay. That's a lot of washing up that I'm going to be doing. So um, my mum was fixated on this guy. She really wanted me to to marry this guy. So he goes to me, um, what's important to you in a marriage? And I had no fucking idea what was important to me in a marriage. What was important was not getting married. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like not doing it. So I was like... um, well look I'm really I'm really independent and I have my career and that's my priority at the moment and I'm not going to be a housewife and blah 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 blah. and I was like that right and he just listened and nodded his head and then it was silent and then I said what's important to you in a marriage because obviously I hadn't thought of any questions to ask him and he was like he looked into my eyes Susie he leaned (laughs) forward and he said love honesty trust and respect and I thought, oh, fuck, man, you're good. Uh, seriously, I do not deserve you. You're too good. Um, and the thing is, he was ready to get married. And I really hope that he did. And I hope he's like really, really happy, happy and got a beautiful family because he's such a good guy. But I was like, oh, shit, like he really is up for it, isn't he? Um, so I was like, so then we chit chatted a bit. Um, and then we went downstairs and then they all left. And my mum was like, chasing me around the house again, going, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And I was like, nah, mum, no, 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 I'm not into it. And she was like, what? And then like Gangster Nani was so pissed off because now she was feeling like it was shameful that I had said no because that would look really bad on her because especially as the girl, you're not really meant to say no anyway. Yeah. So like I was very unpopular in my family after that, after that incident. Right. Um, but I'm, but I'm glad that 
yeah, obviously I think, you know, and actually there were some other times when it came up, but I think my dad did talk to me and he did say to me, look, do you want to, do you want to get married? And I was like, no. And I think he knew there was kind of no point. I was pretty independent force by this point, having come back from uni. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he was just conscious possibly of the fact that I now had some autonomy, you know, I was getting my own financial independence. I was, I was earning my own salary. So I think he realized he had to loosen things up a bit, you know. How did you go from that girl to being a very out, loud, gay person? I moved out and I got myself a girlfriend. Yeah, that'll help. And uh, she is a wonderful, wonderful person. It was my first sort of proper relationship with a woman. And I was in a bit of a hurry because I was like, if, if I'm going down this gay road then I need to know very quickly if it works for me. So I want to I wanna nest and I want to move in with someone. I want to know if I can be in a relationship with a woman. And because uh, I had this time pressure because I knew that the, the arranged marriage thing was still on the cards. It might have been postponed for a bit, but it was still on the cards. And um, I didn't want to lie to my parents anymore. I was so tired of lying. And I just wanted to be able to be honest with them and be accepted and loved for who I am. And so I had this girlfriend, she's amazing. And I realized, yeah, I can be in a relationship with a woman and be happy. But she didn't want to do the nesting thing. So then I met somebody else and I did the nesting thing with them. And uh, she was another wonderful woman. And um, we decided to get married, fell madly in love, decided to get married. The laws had just changed and it felt like, fuck it, why not? Like, why can't we do it too? So there was a kind of political reason behind it, but also I was madly in love and I could see myself spending my life with this person. And so I came out to my parents. They, they didn't accept it, unfortunately. And um, I was given an ultimatum of um, if you marry this person, then you're no longer a part of this family and you're disowned. Oh, wow. And um, I had to make a choice and I, the choice was mine, you know, um, but I chose that. I chose the opportunity for a happy future with somebody that accepted me for who I was over a, a past that was quite unhappy actually and um, would always be trying to make me be something I wasn't and didn't accept me for who I was. That was what I thought I was faced with at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I lost my family. Yeah, that was 14 years ago. And from there, I found that I found myself very compartmentalized, actually. I found that I could be my lesbian, gay, queer, whatever it is, self over here, but I couldn't be Asian because I didn't, there weren't those spaces. Um, My partner was, was English, white, and I lost touch with my cultural identity so being disowned for me wasn't just about losing a very very insular family as well that I spent all my time with um it was also um and it was my broader family as well not not just you know my family in Winchester I lost my culture you know I lost my mother tongue I lost my ability to speak Punjabi and and my mum's my cooking her sarg my dad singing along to Hindi songs um I lost our weddings and celebrations and religious festivals. I lost the clothes that I would wear to them. And yeah, so it was it was a full kind of cultural detachment that happened very much without me even knowing to expect expect that. You know, I'd, I felt like I'd prepared myself as much as one can for 
losing their family through disownment. But I had completely not been aware and completely underestimated the impact of the cultural loss. Like I said, I have a couple of Asian friends who were that became sisters to me basically because they were able to give me that cultural connection. We'd cooked together. Mm. And so I found other ways. I started to go on my own path of really connecting with my culture. And that involved bringing that into my music. So um, my I have a handful of my dad's Bollywood records and I started sampling them and um, producing, kind of using hip hop production methods, but sampling these old Bollywood songs that, that you know, I grew up hearing and found a musical connection um, in that way. And then I would cook with my friends and set up a website called indianrubies.com which is just a bunch of my mother's and grandmother's recipes just to keep that tradition alive and just our way of connecting with our mothers because my friend's mum had passed away at that point so that was how we shared memories of our mothers I guess and then I went on uh, my own journeys to India I ended up DJing at Bombay Pride a few years ago um, which was amazing I met tons of queer people and queer women that were also Indian like me and was completely blown away by that experience um, and felt really accepted in my motherland a place that I'd been taught to fear because it criminalizes me for my sexuality and what it did or I'm not safe as a woman or um, I'm a low caste, I'm a Dalit caste, so we're, I'm from an oppressed caste, you know, which is like a, a social class system in India. Um, so there are all these reasons why I didn't feel entitled to go there, you know, and I didn't feel like um, I would be welcome. But actually, it's been the most beautiful experience exploring India for myself, making great friends out there. And it being your own. And it being my own and it, yeah, not being um, through the through the guidance or lens of, of my parents, um, it being very much independently my own relationship with, with India. So through the course of all these experiences, I'd started to, um, so I, I got married and um, I was very conflicted because I was very much in love with this person. But at the same time, I really missed my family and my culture and so I felt like I needed to meet people like me and I was really struggling to find anyone like me um the queer spaces that I went to never had any Asian people in at the time and so I was actually contacted by a theatre company a friend of mine sent me an email and they were looking for 10 uh, queer South Asian people who would share their story of their experience because they'd got out Arts Council funding and they wanted to create a show that they would tour around the UK to Asian parts of the UK to create visibility around homosexuality in our in our culture, in our mm-hmm. community. Amazing project. So I shared my story and as part of that, they asked me if I would be willing to talk to media and I said, yeah, of course, but I'd have to be anonymous because even though I'd been disowned, I was still aware that I didn't want any backlash on my family and particularly my mum. The women tend to be blamed and when things don't go to plan. So I was like, okay, I'll be anonymous. So I spent about probably about six or seven years talking to um, media under pseudonyms or anonymously. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and writing anonymously. And I only publicly started using my name and my face about two and a half years ago, at the start of 2017, when I started writing for Diva. That was when I started to use my face and name publicly because I thought, you know what, fuck this. I've been out for 20 years and I still can't see anyone like me. This is not good enough. Someone's got to change it. And you know what? I don't have anything to lose. I don't have anything to lose. And that's the great irony of my story is that being disowned is exactly what has allowed me to do the work that I do and to be so public. 
um, and to to be authentic in that way. Whereas, you know, even the people in my team, they're a lot of them can't be out or can't be named because mm-hmm. they may be out to part of their family, but not all of their family, yeah. or you know what I mean. It's a very complex um, space that we're in. So, actually, being disowned was was amazing for me because it gave me the freedom to fully be who I am and explore who I am in a way that I don't think I ever would have been able to um, if I hadn't have had that experience and also to be able to create work and a movement that helps support other people and create positive visibility around stories like ours is such a great honor um, and I wouldn't have it any other way. So much listening to you and you and hearing about you finding your voice I just can't help but make the connection that you know, with you being sort of in the media now, with Gaysians existing, with your writing and your work being out there, you're going to help and allow so many people to find their voices as well? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. And I, everything that has happened, I would say, since I started using my name and face, has, has only gone to to confirm that, really. I mean, the sort of, you know, the, the stuff you said about me at the beginning of this um, conversation in terms of uh, that feels quite overwhelming to hear that's only really happened um since I started using my name and my face it's less than four years which is no time at all really um so if we think about all the different I mean I know tons of people that have started their own movements now you know whether that's um you know a meetup or whether it's a club night or whether it's you know any any number of things up and down the country for different factions of our community and it's sort of giving permission to people to to do it um Mm -hmm. and I think that's all we really need sometimes we just need to see someone that that looks like us or sounds like us or shares an experience that's similar to ours to give ourselves permission to to follow that path and I just think if I'd seen someone like me when I was much younger then I think I probably could have bypassed a lot of the the depression Mm -hmm. I you know I spent about 10 years depressed after losing my family and I didn't know where to go for support and you know the whole point of Gaysians is is designed for it to not have to take people 10 years to find the support that's already there for them you know these organizations already exist it's just really hard to find them yeah it's just accessing it Exactly. So that's really my take on it. And it's it's not easy work. Um, it can be really challenging. There's a mm-hmm. lot of emotional labor involved. Of um, and, you know, we're constantly always evolving, changing. I certainly am. But what I, I feel very, very blessed to be able to do this work, which enables my growth and actually helps other people at the same time. So I've got one more question for you, and it's the question that I ask everyone who comes on the show. Yeah. And it's um, if you could go back in time and say, speak to, I don't know, the Rita that was maybe having that slightly crazy time when she was at uni before she knew she had to go back to Winchester. Mm. And, you know, it can only be a, a nugget of advice for, for what's to come or someone that's in a similar situation right now, and you could pick up the phone and just give them some reassurance what would you say I would say I think I'd say a number of things I would say be true to yourself nobody knows you like you know you mm-hmm. and a lot of my work as an adult has been about connecting with my childhood self and really honoring who that person is and so I would say be yourself 
You know, your your greatest gift to the world is to to be nothing but yourself. And I'd also say to relax and be hopeful because, you know, I've certainly had many times um, and still do where I doubt myself or I get very anxious or worried um, Mm -hmm. or fear the worst. And that's natural when some of the worst things that you could imagine have happened to you. I think that it's really important to remind yourself to, to relax and be hopeful because even when things don't feel like they're going the way that you want them to, I think it's really important to trust that that there's there's a path that you're walking that that might not make sense for a long time. Mine certainly didn't. It's only recently, I'd say, in the last few years that there were so many loose ends in my life that didn't make sense suddenly came together. I'd also say ask for help. I think particularly in my culture, we have a tendency to try and cope with things ourselves or deal with things ourselves and not ask for help. If we're feeling vulnerable or not feeling safe, I think it's really important to ask for help and let people know how you're feeling and allow them to help you because you feel really vulnerable when you do that. And there's always that fear of rejection. But the fact is, speak to a handful of friends and I guarantee that somebody will be able to help you and support you. Um, And that's only through that that you deepen those bonds as well with those people. I think that's the perfect way to end the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was such a great chat. Really enjoyed that. I absolutely love that conversation. I hope you did too. I think Rita's brilliant and I thought she was so amazing how she shared her story and her journey. If you're listening to this thinking, I want to hear more about Gaysians, please get in touch with them. It's gaysians.org and you can find out everything you need there. As always, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I hope your first week back in lockdown, if you're listening to this in order, you might be listening to this in 2022 and thinking, no, we're way... We're far away from that now. That's a distant memory. But if you are listening to this this week, I hope it's okay. I hope you're doing all right. I hope you're looking after your head and heart, uh, to quote Emma Nike. And, um, and I'll see you next week. Take care.